Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 44, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We have come a long way in the book of Revelation. And I think we should pause to remember our journey. Because each milestone that we've passed has had its own message and purpose, and yet they all work together to guide us to the end of history and beyond that. We began with the seven letters to the seven believing congregations in Asia. And while the Apostle John wrote and, 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 and sent these letters, his opening words of chapter 1 make it clear that it was God who showed him what was to be said. And each letter was essentially a divine spiritual evaluation of each one of the seven congregations. Some did well. Some received failing grades. Some received commendations. Others were admonished with grave warnings for those particular assemblies of believers that they were to repent, they were to change their ways, or they may even have their salvation history reversed. So why did God God have John go through this exercise? It was as preparation for those congregations, perhaps even more so for us today, for the future events depicted by the chapters that followed. God's wrath poured out upon humanity, the destruction of the world Babylon system, and bringing everyone under his judgment. All will be based on Yehovah's spiritual evaluation of us both corporately and as individuals are we meeting his standards are we doing the work he's assigned to us have we yoked ourselves to a godly congregation or to a corrupted and deceived one while the seven letters dealt mostly with the believing congregations corporately, nonetheless, certain individuals were at times called out as exemplary examples. Other individuals were identified as the leading culprits of disobedience, if not outright rebellion. But the congregational leadership tolerating those culprits, allowing them to continue on without rebuke, or even being allowed to remain in that congregation, that was in God's eyes a failure of leadership and even a tacit approval of their wrong behavior. Well, after the warnings to believers, we saw the Lamb of God in heaven spring into action to inaugurate the final stage of the long-awaited redemption process. Only he was worthy to open this mysterious scroll that was handed to him by God the Father. And the opening of this scroll revealed the first seven 
of a series of 21 judgments upon humanity so that history as we know it would receive a firm shove towards its end. And then a new era under the Lamb's reign might begin. We saw the Lord set aside and seal for protection of 144,000 believing Israelites to act as witnesses for him on earth. All the while these 21 judgments were being carried out, the revelation narratives would occasionally pause and it would show us that despite all this misery and suffering on earth and the wicked cursing God for their distress, the residents of heaven were joyful and praising God for what he was doing. So we see the connection between the heavenly spiritual sphere and the earthly physical sphere, but also we see the vastly different perspectives and the reactions of the residents of each sphere as these judgments played out. We read that God even loosed the terrible power of demons upon mankind by opening the pit, the abyss, into which they'd long been imprisoned. So God allowed the power of Satan to torment the people of earth, almost all of whom were at this time wicked people. Now because I believe that the scriptures make it clear that prior to God pouring out his wrath, true believers will be spirited away in soul, not in body, to a safe place. No doubt that place is heaven. Then the only believers that will be suffering under God's wrath are those who at the moment of the rapture were not yet believers. As with the title of that famous book series, these are those who were left behind. But I also have no doubt, and I think scripture makes it abundantly clear, that the rapture itself will cause countless devastated non-believers to reconsider and come to a saving faith in the God of Israel and His Son Yeshua, whom they had denied until these astonishing events. All during the period of God's furious wrath and then the reign of the Antichrist, new believers will be made every day. However, they will not be as fortunate or protected as those believers who trusted Christ prior to the rapture. These newest believers are going to suffer through the same horrors and calamities as the wicked. And many thousands of them will die from their effects and thousands more will be martyred for their faith. Then as prophesied, we read of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion along with those 144,000 witnesses accompanied by a huge ovation from heaven proclaiming the good news to every last person on earth so that none could have any excuse whatsoever for continuing in their rebellion. Next, the evil world system of commerce and religion embodied by the spirit of Babylon was destroyed. And interestingly enough, 
It was not that God directly or supernaturally annihilated it. It is that the beast, the Antichrist, recruited ten kings, represented by those ten horns of the beast, to destroy wicked Babylon. So in Revelation, we read not only of the destructive power of God upon the wicked, but also of the self-destructive power of Satan and his henchmen harnessed by the Lord to achieve his purposes. Next, in chapter 18, as the end of history is only months or weeks away, God pleads with those who claim allegiance to him to come out of her, my people. See, this is directed at the religious part of the Babylon system, where so many deceived people think they are serving God as his followers, but in fact they are slaves to the evil one. It's a call to detach. It's a call to leave behind those agendas and doctrines of men that in no way agree with God's word. It's a warning to flee the Judeo-Christian religious institutions that pretend to have a measure of godliness, but in fact are self-serving and completely void of understanding. It is the same warning that was given to the residents of Sodom. Some being professing God worshippers before they and their city were liquidated by the righteous anger of the Lord Most High. Then we saw the heavens opened and here comes Messiah as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings anxious to finish what the Father has ordained. He leads an enormous army from heaven to face the nations at the battle of Armageddon. His purpose is no longer to save, but to destroy. The battle short and sweet, the good guys went in a rout. Evil, at least for the time being, has been defeated. The millennial reign of Christ over God's kingdom has begun. And this brings us to what we'll study today. Revelation chapter 20 as God deals with Satan, the one who started this fight in the first place. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1553. 1553. Revelation chapter 20. Next I saw an angel coming down from heaven who had the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and changed him up, uh, chained him up for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He locked it. He sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. After that, 
He has to be set free for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them received authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for testifying about Yeshua and proclaiming the word of God. Also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and they ruled with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is anyone who has a part in the first resurrection. Over him the second death has no power. On the contrary, they will be kohanim, they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will rule rule with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, the adversary will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is countless as the sand on the seashore, and they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people in the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. And they were judged each according to what he had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. One of the larger questions that we that must be answered to begin this chapter is this. Do the events that we just read about occur immediately following the events that conclude chapter 19? Or, when we read the opening words of chapter 20, which are, next I saw, are we to take this to mean that chapter 20 may well be the next vision John receives. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the contents of the vision occur chronologically next after the occurrences of chapter 19. See, premillennialism, which is my viewpoint, says that the events of chapter 20 do come next after the events of chapter 19. Now, we've discussed in prior lessons that we have to be cautious not to confuse the sequence of John's visions with how the contents of John's visions link together. It can be at times that the contents and events predicted do occur in sequence. At other times, they occur in parallel. At other times, at least some part of the vision 
may occur prior to a vision that was given to us earlier. How to tell the difference is challenging. And the, the, the decision one makes plays a substantial role in how we interpret these end times events. And yet, it seems to me that there are ways, however imperfect, to help us distinguish one from the other. For instance, some chapters, like chapter 12, have the ability to stand alone because they give us information whereby sequence doesn't really matter. Whether those events come before or after another vision of John's doesn't, material, uh, doesn't materially alter its meaning or its, its interpretation. Chapter 11 is similar. What difference does it make in interpreting Revelation, Revelation as to when John measures the temple? So we get these chunks of information about the nature of things that is going to happen, but where exactly they, exactly they sequentially fit in the chain of events isn't all that critical for us to know. However, in other cases, sequence of events is critical and it does matter. One of my underlying principles about studying God's Word is that we are to take it literally and in the sequence we find it unless there is a compelling reason to see it otherwise. For instance, when Christ is spoken of as the Lamb, we have to take that symbolically. At no time does Yeshua transform into a sheep walking on four legs with white wool growing out of his skin. Or earlier in Revelation, when the believing congregations of Asia are called lampstands, menorahs really, clearly those particular assemblies are not actual metal lampstands. So we have in these two examples of symbolism the object being to compare or even apply the attributes of one thing to another thing. At other times, the reasonable certainty of chronological sequence is obvious. For instance, the final words of chapter 12 are, Then the dragon stood on the seashore. And the first words of chapter 13 are, And I saw a beast come up out of the sea. So we have obvious sequence. In chapter 18, we have this long narrative that includes the wailing and mourning of various groups of people whose livelihoods depended on the world economic system overseen by the now suddenly destroyed Babylon. In the next chapter, chapter 19, we have a series of jubilant praises from the residents of heaven for God having overseen the destruction of Babylon. Obviously, the events of chapter 19 follow the events of chapter 18. So here's the logic I've employed in an attempt to ascertain proper sequence of events. Since clearly chapter 19 logically 
follows chapter 18. And because chapter 19 includes the event when Christ returned and he destroyed those rebellious armies at the battle of Armageddon instigated by Satan, then it logically follows that once that's done, God would directly deal with Satan just as we see that occurring in chapter 20. I mean, after all, if as some Bible commentators claim and some denominational doctrines decree that God had already subdued Satan, as we read about it, to be in chapter 20, sometime earlier. In other words, Satan is bound before the events of chapter 19, maybe even before the events of chapter 18, if Satan had been bound and unable to lead or deceive the nations, they likely, there likely would not have even been a battle of Armageddon. So simply from an issue of common literary structure, if not just common sense, chapters 18, 19, and 20 are events that must happen in the sequence that's given to us, or they make little sense. Now, as for how much time might have passed in between this series of momentous events, that's impossible to determine because nothing definitive is given. However, the sense and the tone of it is that these things happen in fairly rapid fashion. So with that understanding now, let's go back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. After Christ has defeated the nations at Armageddon, after the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, we find this angel coming down from heaven to subdue Satan and lock him up in the abyss. Notice this. While the terms the beast and the false prophet are symbolic, they are symbolic of two real human people who are going to be alive during the last days and they will do these predicted events. The beast is figurative of whoever is going to be the Antichrist. The leader of the world government who will be a real, living, breathing human being. And the false prophet is figurative of the leader of the religious institution sanctioned by the beast. And he will also be a real, living, breathing human being. But when we read of the devil and the chains that hold him prisoner in the abyss, these are symbolic not of real, living, breathing people, but rather, since the devil is a spiritual, not a physical being, then the chains are figurative of some type of supernatural binding that the Lord has placed upon him. So, see, it is this constant mixing of the literal, symbolic, physical, spiritual that makes Revelation the challenge that it is to interpret. Now, as for the lake of fire, it, too, is symbolic on the one hand, and yet it seems to be an actual spiritual place on the other hand. I don't want to get too out there. But one way to think about the reality of the lake of fire 
is the same way we think of heaven. I think we can all agree that heaven is certainly real. But is it also actually a place? I say that it is an actual place. But it is a place unlike anything we know or can imagine because it exists in another dimension somewhere outside the four dimensions that we human beings live in. Heaven resides in a dimension that we have no means to access or enter until our spiritual souls are released from these corrupted bodies. Then we're able to escape the bounds of these four dimensions. So there's no reason that the lake of fire cannot be real and an actual place. However, it exists in another dimension outside of the four that we live in just as does heaven. In fact, I guess I really am going to get out there. Way back in Genesis, I spent some time explaining how perhaps the chief governing dynamic of the entire physical universe of God's creation is that it is a universe of opposites. Very important principle. If we have an up, we necessarily have a down in our universe. If we have a positive, we necessarily have a negative. If we have life, we have death. If we have good, we have evil. If we have light, we have darkness, on and on and on. Therefore, since the disembodied souls of the righteous dead are given a place to go, heaven, then the disembodied souls of the evil dead necessarily also have a place to go. Hell, the lake of fire. And by the way, this is not how it's going to be always. As we're going to find out later on in the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to talk about it right now and ruin the ending for you. Okay, we have encountered this angel with the key to the abyss earlier in Revelation. Back in chapter 9. Starting at verse 1, we read, The fifth angel sounded his shafar, and I saw a star that had fallen out of heaven onto the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft leading down to the abyss. And he opened the shaft of the abyss, and there went up smoke from the shaft, like the smoke of a huge furnace, and the sun was darkened in the sky too by the smoke from the shaft. So as we discussed back in chapter 9, the term star is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for an angel. But here in chapter 20, we see the actual term angel being used to identify the keeper of the key to the abyss. Now it's important to notice how in chapter 9, God sent an angel with the key to the abyss to open it up and release the demons that were locked up, order, uh, in, uh, locked up in it in order for them to torment earth people. Now in chapter 20, Satan, I, I suppose, his demons, 
were are sent to the, are, are sent to the abyss to be held captive. Satan is said to be bound in chains and locked up there for one thousand years. The opening of the abyss, which is spoken of in chapter nine as the shaft leading down to the abyss, is sealed up. It seems that Satan can never again be a bother. In fact, we're told that since he is locked away, he can't deceive the nations of the earth any longer to oppose God. But then, at the end of verse 3, we get this short, startling sentence. It says, after that, he has to be set free for a little while. What? Wait a minute. Why? We're going to get to that in due time. Now, although it's not my goal to turn any of you into theologians, it is important to know how much of Christianity thinks about the message of Revelation chapter 20. So I do need to mention that those denominations who adhere to what is called the amillennial doctrine of the end times say two important things about Revelation chapter 20. First, that there is no actual 1,000 year era. It is strictly symbolic of the entire indefinite period of time of the so-called church age. Second, the event that we read in chapter 20 about Satan being bound up in chains and placed in the abyss takes place not in the end times, but rather it happened long ago at the cross. Therefore, ever since the crucifixion of Christ, the devil has been bound up and sent to the abyss where he can cause no harm to or in any way influence Christians or the church and he cannot deceive peoples and nations. I'm not going to spend much time to dispute all this except to say that one has to allegorize and spiritualize the Bible rather heavily to arrive at such a conclusion. And also one has to see at least some of John's end times visions as not being about the end times at all, but rather as a statement of past history, even past for him in his day. This is the view of the Catholic Church. It is the view of many, if not most, of the mainline and mostly liberal Protestant churches and of most of the Eastern Orthodox church branches. It's widely held. Now of those two main claims in amillennialist doctrine, the issue of the 1,000 years as not being an actual literal number of years is very difficult for me to accept as legitimate. Here in Revelation chapter 20, we see that in verses 2 through 7, the term 1,000 years is used six times. Six times in five verses. Well, six verses, I guess. It speaks of periods of time that the devil will be subdued 
how long believers will rule with Yeshua, how long after the first resurrection before the rest of the dead will be resurrected, and how long before Satan will be set free from the abyss in order to foment a rebellion among the nations. To interpret this 1,000 years as an indeterminate amount of time or even as a symbolic amount of time is most difficult for me since it's repeated again and again and it is tied to specific events. The amillennial position therefore makes the use of the number 1,000 utterly meaningless. And one has to ask why such a specific number would be used multiple times in a five-verse cluster if it was to have no discernible meaning passing along no useful information to John's readers. Using the principle of taking the Holy Scriptures literally, unless there's a compelling reason to do otherwise, then we must take the thousand years to mean a literal thousand years, ten centuries of measurable time as we currently understand it. Now the second of these two main claims of amillennialism is even more difficult than the first for me to consider is legitimate. There is no scripture that can be taken in context to back up such a claim that the devil was bound when Christ was crucified. Or that the devil is currently restricted from harming believers, or from corrupting believing congregations, or from deceiving peoples and nations into doing his evil bidding. Frankly, all one has to do is read history books, or even just live for a few years in modern times to know that this contradicts the reality of everything we see going on around us. I mean, if we've been living in the era of a restrained and uninvolved Satan for 2,000 years, why is the state of the world so increasingly dark and wicked? Why is human behavior no better during this time than what it was in the previous 2,000 years? Why is God going to judge Satan putting all the world's evil and filthiness on his shoulders and in the end times destroy him if he's had nothing to do with it? Under such a scenario, the ongoing spirit of Babylon the Great that has corrupted mankind and led billions, literally, into misery and eternal death and the scores of oppressions, attempted genocides on God's people, well, this would then relieve Satan of any responsibility and make him just an innocent bystander. And yet, this is the logical conclusion to where the doctrine of amillennialism leads. Thus, excellent Bible commentators, including the illustrious G.K. Beale, who adhere to this rather puzzling man-made doctrine, attempt to somewhat rearrange Scripture in order to make this improbable scenario seem realistic and possible. The problem is that this doctrine defies the Scriptures as they are written. 
and it denies the state of things in this world since time immemorial that are and have been self-evident. But it is also a prime example of taking the word of God and through liberal application of allegory and spiritualization make it to say anything one wants it to say. Well, verse 4 begins a short section that upon careful reading is, I'm afraid, full of difficult ambiguities. Let's try to sort it out. John says he sees thrones and he sees those who are seated on them and that those seated on those thrones have been given the authority to judge. So who are those seated on the thrones? Who or what are they to judge? So next John says he saw those who had been beheaded, executed, for testifying about Yeshua and for proclaiming the word of God. And then John says, he also saw those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received the mark of the beast, and then to conclude this long verse 4, we're told that they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. Who's they? So this verse creates as many legitimate questions as it answers. Well, in trying to frame the essence of this ambiguity, I think we can say that essentially John either identifies three separate groups of people. Those seated on the thrones, those who had been beheaded for their faith, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not taken on the beast mark of 666. Or he has identified one all-inclusive group of people, those seated on thrones, and they consist of all deceased believers, among which were those who were executed for their faith, those that refused the mark of the beast, and whatever sufferings came with that decision, and those who would not worship the beast's image, and whatever oppression, uh, oppression came with that, oppression came with that refusal. See, what makes this verse so difficult is the repeated use of the Greek word kai that is almost always rendered as and in our Bibles. But in addition to the common word and, kai can mean also, it can mean indeed, it can mean even, it can mean but. Thus, in one case, the Greek word kai can be used to modify, modify the phrase that came before it. It can be used to modify the phrase that comes after it. It can be used to separate one phrase from another. It can be used to combine two or more phrases. It's pretty challenging. Now, I've read on this exact issue, because <laughs> it's perplexing, several scholars' articles and commentaries. And I can't say whether they might be right or wrong. But I'm going to offer you a little different solution that I think at least ought to be considered. See, I see verse 4 of speaking not of one group or three groups of people, but rather of two groups of believers. 
I'll show you why. First, those who are seated on thrones. Second, all these other believers who died for any number of reasons. Martyrdom, old age, accident, illness, it doesn't matter. But this second group is not seated on the thrones. So, if that's the case, if I'm right, then who are those representing the first group? That group of believers who are seated on thrones and given the authority to judge. Okay, Here's the irony to my solution. I'm essentially going to use the same verse that others have used to claim that those seated on the thrones represent all believers, including those who were beheaded, those who didn't worship the beast's image, those who didn't take on the mark. And that verse we find in Matthew 19.28. Yeshua said to them, Yes, I tell you that in the regenerated world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, on the surface, this verse can sound like Messiah is speaking about all believers. He says, you who have followed me, right? And he says, they will sit in the next world on thrones. However, there's a couple of problems with that viewpoint. The thrones are 12 in number. There has to be more than 12 believers when this whole thing is over at the end of time. And the judging is not said to be over the whole world. Who's it going to be over? What does it say? The twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this sends up a red flag to me. But it usually causes Christian commentators no heartburn because by applying allegory and spiritualizing the words, they say that the church all believers has replaced or is symbolized by the twelve tribes of Israel. And therefore the twelve thrones are just figurative of a limitless number of thrones for all members of the church to sit upon and judge. But the bigger problem with this approach is the verses just before the one that I read to you. So I'm going to read you now Matthew 19, verses 25 to 28. In other words, the verses that come just before what I just read to you, and then we'll finish up with the next verse. When the Talmudim, the disciples, heard this, they were utterly amazed. Then who, they asked, can be saved? And Yeshua looked at them and said, Humanly, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Kepha, Peter, replied, Look, We've left everything and followed you, so what will we have? And Yeshua said to them, I tell you that in the regenerated world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, guess who's present and only present when Yeshua's speaking? The twelve disciples. So in the context of his statement, 
Yeshua is talking only to his 12 disciples. He's not talking to anybody else. Nobody else there. 12 Jewish men, 12 Israelites to whom he says they will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And how many of them are there? 12. Well, isn't that interesting? 12 Jewish disciples, 12 thrones, 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. See, he makes this promise, I want to say this again, to them. He didn't make this to anybody else. I cannot find a scripture in context. Maybe you can't, I can't. This says all believers in general are going to each be given our own throne to be seated upon. Therefore, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, Revelation 20 verse 4 seems to be speaking about those 12 disciples finally getting the reward that Jesus himself promised to them. And it's recorded in Matthew 19. Now as for the other believers in verse 4, they are the souls of those who testified for Christ, believers in general, those who were beheaded for their faith, martyred believers, and those who had not worshipped the beast, or his image, or taken on the 666. Believers who lived during the time of the Antichrist, and they no doubt suffered grievously. What is going to happen to all these believers, apart from the 12 disciples? who lived and died in such varying circumstances at various times over history. Verse 5 says, they will come to life. They will be resurrected and they will rule with Messiah for a thousand years. Now, is ruling with the Messiah the same thing as sitting on thrones? I don't think so. Sitting on one's own throne is a very special privilege even above the privilege of all believers being able to judge the universe in some general way. 1 Corinthians 6.1 How dare one of you with a complaint against another go to court before pagan judges and not before God's people? Don't you know that God's people are going to judge the universe? If you are going to judge the universe, are you incompetent to judge minor matters? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention affairs of everyday life? So if you require judgments about matters of everyday life, why do you put them in front of men who have no standing in the Messianic community? So, I'm suggesting that one solution for the dilemma of verse 4 is that the believers seated on thrones are the twelve disciples and they will judge the literal 12 tribes of Israel just as Christ said they would. And those who came to life and ruled with Messiah for a thousand years are essentially all other believers. Now while I can't be 100% certain of this solution, at least it seems to align with Scripture without having to take verses out of context to make it work. We'll continue with Revelation chapter 20 next week.